You're listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom, a weekly show about current events in the world of carbon removal, from technology and innovation to policymaking and job growth. Brought to you by Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. Hello, everybody, and welcome back from our summer break. We're starting it off with our policy episode this week. It's September 8th, so hope everyone had a wonderful long weekend and is ready for fall to start. Uh, Today, we have with us Selena Scott Bugler. She's a senior resident fellow at Data for Progress. Hello, Selena. Welcome. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're very excited to chat with you. Also returning my longtime co-host, Chris Barnard, Policy Director at the American Conservation Coalition, also a UK citizen and in England right now. Chris, how are you doing? Are you okay with the bad news about the Queen's passing? Yeah, it's a a hard time. Um, And I'm actually technically not a UK citizen. I lived here for five years and I have uh, UK heritage, but I don't actually have citizenship. Apologies, apologies. But I still consider her my queen. <laughs> well, and I have no association with the UK, but she's my queen as well. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's it is a for me it's very sad because she's also like one of the last links to the greatest generation, which you know it's um it's something that I I actually kind of feel, which I is strange as a Indian and American. I don't know where it comes from, but anyway. Let's get started on actually stuff related to carbon removal. So earlier this year, um, the think tank and polling organization Data for Progress released polling that showed that voters all across the political spectrum support federal procurement of carbon removal. And this is the organization that Selena is with, and she did a lot of this work. Um, They conducted two polls. One was of New York voters on statewide legislation and another was of nationwide vote uh, voters on pending federal legislation. So back in February, we talked about these bills, particularly the New York bill with um, the policy advocate and co-author of one of these reports, Toby Bryce. So now recently data for progress also released polling which showed um, support for CDR, but low recognition uh, of it. So. I guess I will start it off with you, Selena, to kind of get a sense of what these polls told you about CDR generally within the country and anything that was either surprising and or kind of novel. Yeah, thanks. A really, really good question. So as as is probably unsurprising to most of your listeners, the vast majority of people had not heard of carbon dioxide removal. And even those in the roughly 40% of people who said they knew kind of some or, you know, a lot about carbon removal, when we asked them, well, what, what is carbon removal? What would you consider to be carbon removal? Many of them included recycling or other sustainability efforts among carbon removal approaches. And this was also uh, done in a morning consult poll. They found very similar things. And so there's, there's kind of some name recognition that we're seeing pop up, which is exciting because had we done this poll five years ago, I imagine that people wouldn't have even heard the term People are now starting to encounter it, but don't exactly know what it is. When they're presented with information on it, 
there's generally positive responses. And this is kind of, if we just ask about it as a, you know, a concept, what do you think about it? Folks across the aisle tend to have high favorability. And this is higher favorability than we see for clean energy deployment, even for, you know, other climate related topics, which is really exciting to see that there is bipartisan support. And that was also mirrored in the state level, state level polling that we did for the Carbon Dioxide Removal Leadership Act, um, which would be a, a New York state bill that would have a reverse auction in order to procure carbon dioxide removal. And the bill would be funded primarily by repealing an existing corporate tax break for commercial aviation fuel. And in talking with folks outside of the kind of official poll, this funding mechanism was, was a real draw for, for folks. Um, and when we also did a, a poll polling question on the Federal Carbon Dioxide Removal Leadership Act, which is based loosely on the New York State Bill, but was introduced in the House by Representatives Tonko and Peters, we found similarly that there was a 71% support rate across demographics, across parts of the country, across party lines, and that even a majority, a slim majority, 59% of Republicans were in favor, which for climate things for us was, was really exciting to see. Um, before I jump to Chris and his reaction to the poll, quick question, just for kind of context, what inspired you guys to even ask this question? Um, why were you thinking that CDR was even ready for to ask people about? Yeah, so we work on kind of, you know, both public polling questions as well as sort of policy analysis and policy advocacy and with an express progressive focus. And in talking with progressives who are working on legislation, we found that there was sort of increased awareness, again, name recognition among organizations that are working on climate related topics, but that often there was some confusion about what exactly CDR is, what its role could be, and how the general public sort of felt about it. And so we decided to sort of, you know, back up uh, some of the work that we were starting to do in this space with some kind of baseline numbers of just, you know, taking the country's pulse, how are voters thinking about this? And do they do they know about it? We were actually quite surprised to see that many people sort of associated the name, even if then they got the definition a little wrong. So Chris, curious uh, what, what you thought about it. I mean, I think it's particularly good news, right? But 59% of Republicans seemed in favor of CDR. Was there, um, you know, what did you think of it and what did you make of those numbers? Yeah, I think this is not necessarily surprising. Um, a lot of polling in general has shown that Republicans and independents and Democrats uh, tend to like these kind of technological solutions to climate issues. Uh, and, you know, carbon 
carbon dioxide removal and carbon capture and storage and all those those kinds of things, especially when explained, kind of have this futuristic high tech sound to them. Like this is a way that we're going to tackle climate change and reduce emissions uh, without requiring huge sacrifices on your behalf. And I think that's the kind of climate policy that appeals to Republicans, broadly speaking. The other thing is obviously this is like specifically um, New York, I believe, right? Um, whereas in in other states like Texas and and more in the South, where they produce a lot of oil and gas, places like that, they the people there do realize that this is one of the ways that their what they consider their industry might actually be a part of the solution rather than just be vilified. Uh, so that's that's there is an interesting dynamic there that a lot of of these companies are investing in carbon capture and storage because they see it as one of the ways for them to remain relevant. Um, so I'm I'm really not that surprised and um, doubly encouraged by the fact that that there is widespread support for this. Yeah, if I may, we also ran a Wyoming state level poll and we're coming out with with some of those results soon. I won't uh, spoil everything and um, folks can find that on our blog soon. But we found interestingly that the vilification of carbon in places that are reliant or have been traditionally reliant on fossil fuels is something that sort of has rubbed people a bit the wrong way. So even where we were proposing, you know, carbon dioxide removal or, or CCS and CCUS um, work that we were finding, we were hearing that, you know, folks were sort of like pushing back against this idea that carbon needed to be managed in the first place. And, and so that, that I think complicates some of these things that we see at a national level where there is overwhelming support. But I, I, I think there's more work to be done to look into some of these key demographics to ask, okay, you know, how are farmers thinking about this, especially people with agricultural roots. We've heard as we've been having more of these conversations, folks sort of saying, well, you know, agriculture needs carbon and carbon is an essential building block of our way of life. And so if you're going to be taking that carbon away, what's going to happen to agriculture? And so there, there are these, you know, interesting sort of nuances. I think top line numbers are really important and certainly at a policy level kind of tell you what your constituency is. But as you sort of dig a little deeper, there are all sorts of associations that folks have. Yeah, just to, just to quickly, quickly add to that as well. Uh, I think there's probably an interesting semantic difference between saying carbon dioxide removal, implying that something needs to be removed and carbon capture, storage and utilization, because they're like, the reality is that it might be controversial, but there are ways that carbon can be used for enhanced oil recovery, or just purely like in cement or like other things. Like I know a company that is turning uh, carbon into um, baking soda and selling that on the market. And so there's like really cool applications where you can turn what is considered the waste product into economically beneficial products. And so there's like a, a, a better positive connotation with that, which auto automatically will translate into broader public support. Um, I find it interesting, Selena, the conversation you were just having about farmers, because as you may know, Nori works with farmers directly and I've never heard that argument. Uh, and I've heard a lot about, I don't believe in climate change and that, but um, you know, to us, it's bringing carbon down is making the soils healthier, which allows you to grow more. So it's to Chris's point, it feels like it's almost a misunderstanding of what carbon removal really is and the benefit that it could have 
uh, for them as individuals in society more generally. I did want to follow up on one question, though, when you were talking about like the demonization of carbon removal a little bit, you know, there are quite a few progressives who are particularly in certain, um, you know, advocacy groups, environmental justice groups who really feel like carbon removal isn't the right way to move forward. Did you see any of that kind of dichotomy within your polling? Yeah. We, we see that mostly in sort of the conversations that we have with organizations. I think there is a real concern about kind of the moral hazard of CDR. I'm sure that's something that, you know, we've all talked about extensively sort of in, in the CDR world, but that is a real concern. And we're digging more into sort of how the public views that, sort of what role they view decarbonization versus carbon removal. But if we look at California sort of as a case study, they recently sort of had a, a, this battle over, well, how much of our net zero goals should be carbon removal versus decarbonization. And that was organizations, but also, I mean, there were community organizations so representing large groups of people. And the feeling was really, we need to define the role for CDR and, and not kind of overpromise with it. And so that, that's something that we do hear a lot from progressives, progressives is, you know, is this going to be a door left open to fossil fuel companies? And, you know, are we going to put all of our eggs in the carbon removal basket? at the expense of decarbonization. And that was the primary reason that Data for Progress got into this work in the first place, was we thought that this was a real opportunity to present a progressive approach to carbon dioxide removal that could address these concerns head on while presenting a way forward on carbon removal that allows us to meet these needs that are now enshrined in IPCC modeling. So I'm going to pivot a little bit to you, uh, back to you, Chris. And, you know, I know we've talked about different types of procurement models, and I know you're a fan of the one in the New York state legislation, the reverse auction you had, I, if I remember our conversation correctly from February, but what are other types of government support or types of support generally and policy interventions that you think Selena and other pollsters should be asking about? And what are things that you think both sides of the aisle would could agree on? Yeah, it's a good question. And I mean, I'm not sure, like, obviously, I, I do, I work on policy. So I'm not sure what, like, this might be more specific, like, what are the policies that, like, legislators should implement rather than like pollsters asking about, but obviously, there's a connection there. Uh, but one of the things that like, we've really focused on at, at the American Conservation Coalition is some of the uh, regulatory hurdles in that are um, in, in front of these projects to remove carbon dioxide at scale. Um, there's this really interesting article um, from 2019, actually, in Forbes, and it's called the top five legal barriers to carbon capture and sequestration in Texas. And the example specifically uses Texas because there is so much potential there. But I think a lot of it applies across the country that some of the stuff is about how the, the permitting for some of the wells to uh, inject uh, CO2 is, is, is pretty convoluted um, and needs to be streamlined. Um, like what I was talking about earlier, like CO2 is actually classified as a waste, and so it doesn't qualify for a lot of the legal 
benefits of being able to do certain projects and whatnot. Um, there's all kinds of issues with liability and, and just like property rights and what all that would look like. And so there's just a lot of regulatory streamlining that needs to happen for these projects to be able to unlock at scale. That's one thing. The other thing is obviously I'm a big fan, broadly speaking of carbon markets and being able to buy and sell uh, these things on the open market. Um, uh, and I think there's a role for the government there to help streamline that process to make sure that there is kind of a central verified process to do those things. Uh, I also think that broadly speaking, doing pro public private partnerships with our national labs, investing in these uh, technologies and innovations is a really good thing. And I think it's not just a good thing from a climate perspective, but I also think there will come a point at which this is commercially viable that you can start exporting and selling this technology to countries like India or China or others and helping them reduce their emissions, but then also getting the economic returns for exporting that kind of technology. So I do think there's there's a fair few other things that legislators should be looking at. And I think the permitting reform and like regulatory streamlining piece is especially important because we know how much that's holding clean energy projects back. And it's also making it more difficult for these carbon dioxide removal projects. Yeah, it's, we've talked about that a few times, Chris, and it, it's just it's just not like it's interesting enough, it feels like for policymakers to want to take seriously because they don't get the big announcements. They don't, you know, at least that felt like some of my experience working in government too, right? The The nuts and bolts sometimes are harder to push through than the funding packages. Yeah, although right now permitting reform is top of the agenda in DC with the whole yeah. man-consumer deal. So we'll That's see true. what comes out of that, yeah. Fingers crossed. Um, so Selena, kind of hearing Chris's perspective on policy, are there other polling questions that you wish or would like to go back out and ask, whether it's at a national level, a state level, a local level? Yeah, one of the things that we're sort of curious about is sort of how do voters think about how projects should be funded, right? I think like we talk a lot about kind of procurement, uh, government procurement, both at the state level and also at the federal level. And one of the areas of pushback we've sort of had is, is well, you know, why is it that sort of taxpayers should be footing the bill for a cleanup problem that was largely created by a few key industries. And so some of the things that we're sort of digging into is, you know, what are, what are funding mechanisms that might be able to help scale these really, really important technologies? And I'm using technologies as kind of a, a neutral term, both, both the sort of industrial processes, but also land-based options. And how do voters think about, you know, what that should look like moving forward? And then the other key area that we're looking at, um, or hopefully going to be looking at, is how are people thinking about what the government's role should be in terms of carbon accounting and in terms of setting benchmarks? And how does the government you know, work alongside the private sector in order to set really, really rigorous goals and be able to meet them in ways where we're not encountering leakage or double counting or any of these things that you know we're starting to sort of see as we you know learn as we go in in kind of carbon markets 
Um, and so those are two things that I'm, I'm really curious about um, and I think would be impactful for, for policy audiences. Well, it definitely seems like one area of agreement between probably progressives and Republicans is why is the public taxpayer paying for a problem we didn't create? I don't know, but it seems like a common ground, a common seed that can be worked from to get CDR um, up and running in a more meaningful way. Um, I'm going to sort of pivot to some of the CDR legislation now, which uh, Selena, I was hoping you could maybe tell us how things are going both in New York and maybe Chris, if you know what's going on with the federal or Selena, maybe you both do um, the federal legislation. I'll start with you, Selena. Yeah, thanks. I It'll be it'll be interesting to see how how the New York um, legislation goes. My understanding is that. Um, in large part through open air collectives efforts, there's been a lot of support that that has been raised. Whether it's enough is is what we're what we're going to see. I think often we see sort of a domino effect in state level policy. Once one state enacts something, another state is more likely to follow. And California setting these really you know, stringent demarcations between decarbonization and carbon dioxide removal and setting aside funding for meeting those carbon removal goals, I think is, is hopefully going to push New York state lawmakers along in thinking about, well, you know, how are they going to scale this carbon dioxide removal sector that they have already implicitly agreed to scale because they've agreed that you know 85% of their net zero goals are going to be met through decarbonization and 15% and through other means, including carbon dioxide removal. And, and so I think that kind of you know interstate competition, but also sort of you know collaboration, learning from each other is going to be an important dynamic to, to follow. And I'm, I'm hopeful that New York State will be able to pass that. Um, and in terms of, of the federal legislation, we're seeing increased interest from folks who haven't traditionally, engaged in CDR. CDR has often been sort of a very kind of centrist or even right of center policy priority for some of the kind of especially infrastructure based approaches. And I think the coalition behind CDRLA at the federal level has done a really good job of, you know, identifying what some of the weak points of like technology neutral legislation is, namely, you know, whether it can go toward enhanced oil recovery, sort of, you know, on what time scale, like which are the agencies that get involved. And so I feel hopeful about that legislation, though the pattern with Congress is that, you know, must pass packages or omnibuses are sort of the, the legislative tool uh, for these things. So I don't think we'll see a CRLA on its own, but potentially, you know, cobbled together with with some of these other legislative priorities. Yeah, unlikely to see it before the end of this year, um, with the with the election and everything that's that's happening. Um, yeah, on the federal level, like CDRLA is sponsored solely by Democrats at this point. Um, so it'd be 
it'd be cool for them to to reach across and i'm not sure to what extent they are doing this but to reach across the aisle and try and get some bipartisan co-sponsorship of that and and there might be kind of a deal to be struck there like if they come on board with this they can look into some ways to clear up some of the regulatory stuff to help cite this and what all that would look like so i think obviously ira had a lot of good climate investments but it was very one-sided in terms of the like it was it was just one party and i think the most durable best climate policy going forward will be bipartisan so hopefully they can have those conversations together and get some republicans on board and um, try to reach out across the aisle chris what what do you think a republicans would want to see in that cdrla to make them I know you talked about the permitting, but are there other things that might make it more attractive to them? Is it about the the way it's funded? What's your sense? My sense would be that they would probably want an enhanced oil recovery to be like to be called out specifically as one of the appropriate uses of of uh, removed CO two. Um, I think I think broadly speaking, kind of making sure that you're supporting targeted innovation without like recklessly spending a lot of money, especially with inflation and those concerns right now. Um, so I think, I think, yeah, I think it would be like relatively sm minor things like that. And, and the regulatory piece would be a big one too. Um, and then, you know, we, I want to go back a little bit to the permitting that we were talking about, you were talking about earlier, Chris, and how, I think we've talked about this before, but I'm wondering as you're seeing the Manchin-Schumer bill coming through and these sort of more discussion around permitting, how do you imagine will you get communities on board to allow for these types of permitting? I mean, we see in Iowa, right, very conservative folks joining with very progressive people to try to kill a pipeline for CO2. So, what do you imagine needs to be provided by the federal government or local governments to make it easier? Yeah, I mean, it's always tricky. The The NIMBY mindset on, on a lot of this stuff is, is, is always very hard to overcome. I think being upfront with the ways that this could benefit communities and that there's economic opportunities here, I think is a really important thing to get communities on board. Um, I think also just, just being honest that this is just something that that needs to be done is kind of a way that those particular communities can play a part and be a part of the solution. And depending on where you're talking about this, if you're talking about Texas or Wyoming or places like that, I think one of the ways to message this to the people on the ground there is this is a way for your industry that has employed your family for three gener three generations now uh, to be a part of this to tackle this challenge together rather than just be regulated out of existence with which they're all worried about. Um, so I think there's there's definitely ways to communicate that. But I, I think we should also be realistic that there there will always be kind of a little bit of a NIMBY mindset. And it's 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 hard to overcome that, frankly. Yeah, if I can jump in, this is a topic that we've been working on a lot at Data for Progress is sort of, you know, both in terms of citing and and permitting. Um, but also then in terms of kind of community perceptions. Um, and the things that we're finding are that, you know, often developers just come in way too late for the community consultation. It's called the, the DAD method, the decide, uh, advocate, defend, or announce, defend. And 
communities then feel left out, like their needs aren't being heard. And then that leads to, to you know, feelings of, of ill will later on in the process. And this can then lead to opposition. And so there's a great paper in the, the journal Energy Policy by Suskind et al. Um, published earlier this year that looks at renewable energy siting. And it found that those projects that faced opposition were tended to be the projects that only engaged in community consultation kind of further down in the project development pathway. And that when a project did face opposition, that elongated the project timeline by several years, if not canceling it altogether, and that the cancellation rate among projects that encountered opposition was approximately 50%. And so the thing that we're really trying to do in talking with developers and talking with businesses is to say, look, you know, yes, you might have a process of sort of citing that you have traditionally followed, but actually it's it's working against you, right? You know, that the problem that certainly some changes to permitting are needed, but that the approach to citing on the developer's end is also something that needs to change. Communities need to be engaged and, and offered uh, community benefit agreements, project labor agreements, these kinds of things that are not just sort of tugging on people's heartstrings, but really supporting communities economically and socially in meaningful ways. We hear all the time communities saying, look, you know, renewable energy projects came in or X industry came in and they promised lots of jobs and they promised that we could be part of the solution. They didn't deliver or they just, you know, sort of packed up and left. And so that's that's kind of the landscape that we're dealing with. And I think any project developer that is looking to cite CDR and especially then to scale it to be kind of, you know, gigaton scale needs to be thinking about the sort of local implications of a project and starting that before you've even like completed your blueprint of the project. Have communities get in there early and tell you what doesn't work or else you're going to find out, you know, a year down the road and, and that's going to mean five years of litigation or, or whatever. Some, something that just came to mind as well is like obviously that piece I mentioned earlier about specifically the Texas situation made made the case that a lot of the oil and gas companies already have like some of the infrastructure and the know-how and the kind of the regulatory legal uh, knowledge to navigate a lot of these challenges. I wonder if there's there's ways for CDR removal projects to work with those companies, if not being like led by those companies themselves, which I think they should be doing to help kind of clean up kind of part of their legacy, but also for that partnership to exist, because a lot of those companies will have existing relationships with local communities because they've just been there for so long and they're trusted having provided a lot of the uh, economic and job opportunities in those areas. And there might be ways to kind of sneak CDR in there um, and kind of have this as some kind of partnership, but that's just an idea that came to the top of my head. 
Yeah, I think it depends on kind of which communities you're talking about. In environmental justice communities, fossil fuel companies are largely mistrusted because extractive industries have not consulted communities, have not shared benefits, and have ended up polluting air and water and causing rates of, of cancer and asthma to escalate in predominantly black and brown communities and low-income communities. And so a lot there there are some communities in which the fossil fuel company or the fossil fuel industry has really been a locus for economic development a lot of those attachments we're seeing is sort of more toward kind of unionized workforce and culture of employment than it is necessarily kind of to these industries there are certainly you know ties to industry um, but that if you kind of look a layer deeper, there are these other things that, you know, people are kind of associating with, um, with fossil fuel jobs that I think can be replicated certainly in, in carbon dioxide removal projects. And also, I think if we're looking at sort of, you know, where we want to be citing CDR and if, if the answer is, in communities that have had a you know a past and a bad past with extractive industries that the like relying on a partnership with a fossil fuel company is going to make your project a lot more difficult and and you know potentially something that you want to rethink yeah obviously there's there's certain scenarios where it's not particularly appropriate or relevant and um, that that yeah that totally makes sense. I was thinking specifically of the example of when I, I visited a a coal town in Utah, and they were developing uh, in like partnership with DOE a um, a carbon a carbon capture technology for the coal plant, and it was just really interesting talking to them about how like what you said there is this kind of culture of culture of the industry where. My my father and my grandfather and my grand grandfather all worked in this coal mine. It was it's what sustained this community for generations, and now we're being vilified as the bad guys. Whereas we want to be part of the solution, and like I think really specifically giving them the opportunity to be part of the solution in some communities would be very appropriate. But obviously, recognize in some places it would not be very appropriate. But um, yeah, good point. I think what we can agree on is that earlier and more meaningful interaction with these with these communities and understanding what their perspective is is really the key to actually making these projects move more quickly and getting the community buy-in that you need to really help with both the permitting and the lack of litigation um again a little kernel that maybe the conservatives and progressives can use to help this nascent industry um, establish itself so with that little bit of good news, I'm actually gonna turn it over to Chris to give us our real good news of the week or the, yeah, the, of the episode. So Chris, what do you have on tap? Yeah, I mean, so since it's uh, our first episode back, I thought I'd dig a little bit further than just the last week. Um, but a lot of the times that I bring good news, it revolves around nuclear energy. Um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk about California um, being, finally deciding that shutting down Diablo is bad for California, bad for the economy, and bad for climate change. 
So really excited to see that they're. <laughs> I was open. wondering, Chris, if you were going to talk about nuclear, because it's been a good month overall for nuclear. It has been. It has been. Uh, thank goodness for that. Uh, Germany is still being a little bit stupid, but hopefully they uh, hopefully they get the memo that going to coal is maybe not the best answer when when it comes to a crisis like this. California actually passed like a suite of climate policies recently that are really, really exciting, kind of at the very, very last minute in this kind of like very like cinematic way. The legislature like passed several like enormous pieces of climate related legislation that are really going to move the state forward, um, including what I was saying, you know, setting the 85% decarbonization target, um, but also ensuring that new oil and gas wells are, you know, far enough away, I think it's like, you know, 3000 feet or more away from communities and and from schools. Um, providing incentives for renewable energy, EVs, all sorts of really, really exciting things. So I'm, I'm also, I'm a California native, so I'm, I get a little proud when we talk about these things. Um, Diablo was a great save and would have been a, a climate catastrophe had we not um, been able to keep it online. Well, and as you said about states competing, you know, I'm up north in Washington and we have a governor who thinks he's the climate governor. So I anticipate, he's already talked about 2035 for EV. So I anticipate a lot more stuff coming from across the West Coast as they all compete to be the most climate friendly, which is not a bad thing. Uh, with that, go ahead. I was going to say, and, and the climate governor, yeah, emissions have gone up every year he's in office. I'm not salty about that. <laughs> I mean, I mean that's that's just that's just benji who's acc's president being very critical of uh of your governor i know i know i mean <laughs> but he still has that for his you know ethos if you will um with that i want to thank selena for joining us for the first time thank you so much anytime you want to join again you have any more breaking news from wyoming or any other state please let us know Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. And Chris, as always, I enjoy seeing your smiling face and chatting policy with you and, you know, enjoy the rest of your trip. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom. If you like the show, the best way you can help us is by giving us a great rating and review in Apple Podcasts, following the show on Spotify, and by sharing the show on social media. Tell your friends and help us spread the word about what's happening in the world of carbon removal.